0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for the Biblical World and Life View. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to the Out of the Question Podcast. My name is Charles Roberts. I'm a pastor, and I'm joined by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Andrea, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well on this last. Friday of January 2018.
0: Yes, it's January 26, and uh, today we're going to take up a question that many people ask, and that question is, why don't my kids listen to me anymore? And One of the themes that we have in our podcast is trying to identify the question behind the question, or perhaps there's a more foundational issue that's motivated a question, and in this case, that would be the issue of the authority of the family. Andrea, what what would be some of your thoughts on that? issue to get us started?
1: Well, I think by and large, we have to identify the fact that within the church, within the community of believers, there is a great misunderstanding as to the role of the family as God's primary institution. It's no accident that in scripture, we get genealogies. Who was somebody's father and then who was their grandchild? Because the family is God's central institution. It's the first church, the first state, the first school, the first workplace. What you're supposed to get from your family is how to be a dominion-minded person who will then be able to exercise the Great Commission using the gifts and talents and opportunities God gives you. But when we don't recognize the centrality of the family, we end up with counterfeit substitutes which cannot produce the things that we're called to produce as members of the body of Christ.
0: Yes, and this issue is so crucial to understanding a variety of things that have gone on in our culture. Parents obviously want to understand how the relationship they've had with their kids have changed, especially if they're asking questions like, well, why don't they listen to me anymore? But the far deeper issue, as you have just mentioned, is this question of authority. And we recognize that we have this problem from a Christian perspective. People don't really regard the family as the authoritative institution out of which these other things come. And it reminds me of something somebody once said, for every action, there's a good reason and then there's the real reason. We can come up with all kinds of good explanations as to why kids don't listen and why this, that, and the other, but then there's the real reason behind it, and that is that there has been an assault on the institution of the Christian family, the biblically-based family in particular. And we can see this in just about every aspect of our society where this has played out. Now, I'm 64 years old, and I can remember a time, even at my comparatively youngish age, when families were central. I mean, they weren't expertly biblical models, but you generally had the idea that the family was a central institution in the culture. But all of that slowly has gone away in favor of other institutions taking the place of the authority of the family. Can you speak to that issue, Andrea, about why uh, this has taken place? What, what are some of your thoughts about how this has come about?
1: It's important to know not only what we're supposed to believe or what we believe, but why, why we believe it. If something is true, and we're going to say we take our authority in every area of life from Scripture, We have to understand what the scripture says and why it says it. I'm sure your family and my family had authority. We we didn't want to cross our parents. We didn't want to cross our grandparents. And I can remember one time deciding that uh, I was going to run away from home. I didn't run very far. I went to a friend's house, so it wasn't hard for them to find me. And I remember it was my uncle who came, picked me up, and had a long talk with me. And basically said, You have to get things right with your dad. So my uncle was part of that process. Today, when we have children who get to the age what the society says is the age of maturity, and that's 18 for some things and 21 for other things, people have bought into the idea, and I've heard Christian parents say it they're 18 now. My authority is over. Mm. Well, if you give it up, The fact that God says you still have it really ends up being somewhat of a moot point because you're not exercising it. A good case in point is who do people fear in a healthy sense? They fear enough not to go and transgress. Well, people fear getting a ticket if they speed on the freeway. So that tells us who they fear. They fear what happens if they don't pay their taxes. They have all sorts of things where they'll show What's the highest priority? How many people, how many adults spend a lot of time concerned with, are they dishonoring their parents? If they even think about it, the fact remains, what are you going to do about it? And when parents have said, why don't my children listen to me anymore? I like to ask the question, tell me when they did. (laughs) Yes. And on what basis did they do it? If your response to your children when you correct them is, because I said so, then your children are going to have to say, okay, hmm, why do I have to listen? Well, they're taller and bigger than I am. They control the money in the family. My room is my room because they've said it's my room. So I guess when I no longer need to depend on them, their authority is over.
0: I think that part of the challenge that we face in this, or maybe let me rephrase that, a good framework by which we can better understand the nature of the situation that we're in it was provided by Dr. R.J. Rushdoony in some of his writings about the family in which he, I think keying off on some other authors, identified three basic family types, the atomistic, the domestic, and the trustee family. And we can see in each of these very unique qualities, but that the biblical model is in fact the trustee model. The atomistic family... Is considered the individualistic family, and please, you feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about some of this, where everybody is conceived as is seen as an individual, and the individual's basic motivation is to free themselves from family constraints as quickly as possible so they can pursue their individual lives. And the domestic family tries to get the best of both worlds, and that tends to be the one that uh, I, I think in the nominally Christian world of the past 40, 50, 60 years, people have been familiar with. The trustee family is different from both in that it takes the biblical model of passing the idea of inheritance forward to other generations to perpetuate an understanding of kingdom building, that we are called to have a a mission as a part of extending God's kingdom in this world, and that is our main motivation in doing this.
1: So by identifying that first type, the atomistic family, you have described the best of the modern family. Because as we know, many people never enter into marriage. They are children born without the benefit of a committed father and mother to each other till death parts them. So a lot of people think they're doing pretty good if it's mom, dad, and the kids, and they have a meal together, and they go to church together. But if you presuppose that at some point your family is supposed to go in all sorts of different directions because that's the way it is, there's nothing to build. A corporation makes plans for succession. Mm, When you have you know, the Ford Motor Company, okay, granted that was a 20th century thing, but we still have Ford Motor Company today and somebody has taken over that. Of course, it looks different than when Henry Ford started it, but there was this idea that something was going to continue and it was worth continuing. Sadly, if you ask most children, and I would fall into this category as well, They can't name their great-great-grandfather. One of the things that is deemed unimportant is knowing your family heritage, your family lineage. Why? Well, that's the only place we can say that it's obvious that God's sovereignty was in place. None of us chose our parents, and our parents didn't choose us. So there must be a reason we were placed where we were placed. And if we don't have a biblical structure, we are sitting ducks for contrary perspectives that promise good things, but in no way deliver.
0: I think that we see in the modern outworking of uh, the falling away of this biblical model of the family as trustee, the outworking of a humanistic ideal that understood far better than many Christians, this idea of of generational progress and a long-range planning to accomplish a goal and to bring something into existence. I mentioned, I think, in one of our earlier podcasts, the Marxist theorist, the communist theorist, Antonio Gramsci. And he was the one who disagreed with Lenin and Trotsky about the need for violent revolution. His point was, no, that's never going to work. We need to start in the culture. And he was one of several who identified the family as the place where the ideals of communism and Marxism and the utopian socialist state could be realized by capturing these various institutions of which the family was primary. And one of his later followers, one of Gramsci's later followers, called it the long march through the institutions, where there was an understanding that we've got to start somewhere, and if it's the family, that's where we start, and over time, we make progress to where eventually we reach the goal where the family is no longer the central institution, the state is, or whatever else it may be. In, that, in their case, that's what they wanted, and they've largely succeeded because Christians have never properly understood this, I don't think, and there's a lot of reasons for that, theological primarily. If your idea, for example, is that the the goal of world history is to God to destroy the world and then rapture everybody off into the air, well, that relieves you of any responsibility for kingdom building. But if you have a biblical perspective on that, well, you do have a responsibility. It's to raise a godly family and, con- and to perpetuate God's values and God's law throughout society so that the mission that he gave Adam and then succeeded by Jesus and passed on to us as his followers, can flourish and succeed. It is a gradual process. It is something that goes forward in time. But if it's standing still or going in reverse, it's not going the right way.
1: Exactly right. Think about all the attacks on the family that most people don't consider. So if your property is taxed, if your inheritance is taxed, if you're compelled to send your children to a institution at the age of four or five, depending on your locale where you live, the major input is going to be from someone else and the family is decapitalized. What's more, when the state takes part of your income, part of your capital and says, you have to pay us property taxes, those property taxes usually go to fund the school. Now, if you convince people that somebody else is going to do this work for you, and you just have to give up this little bit, and they can still be comfortable in their life, then they're willing to make the trade-off because they're not being governed by the pursuit of God's righteousness and justice. And they they think righteousness means, I don't do bad things. Hey, I don't steal. I don't have sex outside of the parameters. I'm good. But they've missed the primary call for dominion, Not in terms of what should we be doing, but they define themselves on the things they're not doing.
0: And the fact is, is that if people are not doing what God calls them to do, which is to govern themselves according to his law, govern their families according to his law, govern society according to his law, then there will be someone else or something else that will step in and do that. You mentioned a few minutes ago about people fearing, you can tell by what they're concerned about by what they fear. For example, they're afraid of getting a speeding ticket. So they're afraid of driving too fast. Maybe out there it's different, but I can tell you here, they don't care. (laughs) They speed like crazy. And, And eventually that leads to a breakdown to where if you are not willing to govern yourself and obey the speed limit, then we will come in and we will punish you and we will compel you to do this. So just to the point where people refuse to govern themselves according to biblical principles, that will lead to the increase of state authority and somebody forcing them to govern themselves according to some standard, according to some rule. And almost always it is something contrary to biblical standards. We find this especially in the case of the family. People get married, and I'm not sure we've talked about this before, I think, to some extent what are their motivations for doing that do they really understand that this is a calling especially and exclusively for christians to perpetuate god's kingdom this isn't about just having somebody to be friends with or all the other things that go into make the pluses of marriage but we're on a mission from god we've got a job to do and that's another reason that christians are to marry only in the lord because if you don't share that common goal and that common mission then you're right. And in that, that image of the uh, atomistic family, everybody's bouncing like pinballs all over the place, pursuing their separate things rather than uh, having a united goal.
1: And if you don't pursue it from more than the extended family, because we see the extended family at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Most American Christians, anyway, will look at that as family time. Isn't this a wonderful time for family? But is there any authority in that family? In other words, are those times when we get together, times that we just sort of smile and say, gee, I can't wait for this to be over because it really bothers me how the grandkids act and they're not respectful. Or do the parents say, I can't wait till mom and dad leave because they indulge the children in everything and then they're monsters after they leave. See, the trustee family says we all have a stake in this and we all have a responsibility. And when that's lost and virtually with rare exceptions, it is lost, then there's no continuity then you don't have the ability of grandparents and great-grandparents passing on knowledge from their knowledge of the Word of God and their experience so that everybody knows this is what life was like. You don't think that Solomon's children heard about David's transgression with Bathsheba. They would have had to. How did he come about? Where did he come from? But we spend so much time on these things that don't even last that we lose the generational approach. And the generational approach is so important. And let me just give two examples in modern society that show how effective the assault on the family has been. Recently, there's been a lot of press, there have been movies and books written about the deleterious effects of football on those who play it. Yes. That aside from the obvious thing, there are these subconcussive hits basically destroy somebody's brain and makes it so that they can't function. It doesn't show up immediately, but as soon as they seem to have exhausted their ability to play, whatever adrenaline rush kept them going through all the injuries and everything else starts taking its toll. And so there have been a number of former football players, and it's also not uncommon with people who did a lot of boxing and and received blows to the head that they end up with addictions. Many of them have ended up committing suicide, leaving a wake of devastation in their family. Well, for years, the National Football League denied this was true. And mm-hmm. those who decided to go after it, there was one comment made by two people who were trying to expose it. You don't understand. The National Football League owns a day of the week, Sunday. So the church basically had been replaced with the NFL right? and the NFL had its interests and goals and financial things they wanted to accomplish. Well, now it's out in the open and now we have Congress thinking of a bill to prohibit children under the age of 12 from playing football.
0: Yep. This
1: is the status solution to a problem that stems from lack of parental responsibility and the fact that parents, as much as anybody else, are the ones who encourage their children into sports that are physically detrimental. Where is the concept that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're not really in a position to just beat it up that way? But the parents, the state, the society, our goals, our aspirations have to do with achievement in a secular sense as opposed to achievement in a biblical sense. Right. And the second one, if I might bring it up, is this whole U.S. gymnastics situation about decades of sexual abuse of girls and athletes, because they weren't always girls, they grew up to be young women, who were so injured by a system that dehumanized them. So where were their parents? Why was being a world-class gymnast worth the sexual violation of their daughters? See, when you destroy the family, you destroy the possibility for remedy. So when people go, well, what are we going to do about this? Well, when you're oriented as a statist, pass another law. That's going to solve it. We'll just pass another law.
0: And, you know, for the families that do make an effort to promote a biblical standard, however imperfectly, And even those families that follow have followed in the past an older model that is more like the domestic family, but is very different than the atomistic family, that can serve as a model that can turn out to be very attractive to people, even though they may not understand what attracts them. They recognize that this family has something that is very special, that is very appealing and very different than the chaos that I've known in my family or whatever the situation may be. And I want to share a personal story in that regard. When I was a much younger man in junior high school, I made the acquaintance of a fellow who came from an Italian family, an Italian Catholic family. Now, you could probably put in a small room the numbers of Italian Catholic families in Columbia, South Carolina back in the early 1960s. There weren't that many. This fellow and I became very close friends, and he is a pastor now, by the way, in the same denomination I'm in. But I suddenly was thinking many, many years later, how I didn't realize it at the time, but I used to love to go to his house because there were all all these kids there, and his mom and dad were there, and it was just an amazing environment to be in compared to my family, which my parents divorced when I was about 12. It was a very different kind of cultural experience where you had this Italian Catholic family, and I think he had 10 or 12 brothers and sisters. And I remember talking to him many years later, And I said to him, I made that observation to him, and he said, well, you know, you're not the only one who's told me that. I came to realize that there were people that would come to our house, friends of mine, that they just loved hanging out there because it was such a a very unique experience where there was some cohesion. There was a a father who was, and I have very strong memories of this man's father and his way. He was a very godly, pious man, but he wasn't a tyrant but he he sort of breathed or exuded an authority that was based in this much older model of the centrality of the family. Again, however imperfectly it was, it was very, it was far and away better than anything else any of us in our Protestant evangelical world knew at that particular time. And, you know, I think that this is something that we have to recover, but we don't want just the, the best of the domestic model. We want the trustee model that God has entrusted us with because again, Until we capture that vision, as as our enemies have very well captured, that we have work to do, that we have a calling to fulfill, and it's not about watching the football game or getting the latest thing from the burger joint or the latest fashions. These things have come in and replaced what our priorities ought to be, and I think these have been just as detrimental to family values, that phrase that is basically vacant, as we talked about earlier. Since I, I said that, why don't, why don't we talk about what, what exactly are family values, Andrea?
1: It depends on who's saying it. I mean, every every candidate on either side of the aisle in political parties is always for family values. It implies that we'll throw you a bone. You'll go, oh, that tastes good, and that will be done. They're never talking about the authority of the family. Now, I happen to come from one of those Italian Catholic families, and I can remember friends coming to our house, and saying, wow, your family's just so angry at each other all the time. And I'd say, no, no, what do you mean? They're yelling all the time. I said, oh, no, this is when they're friendly. I said, when they're angry, it's silence. Because everybody felt an interest, a proprietary interest in someone else. So if somebody brought a boyfriend home, uh, they would grill that boy and find out if he was worth his medal, could he stand up to the family? Could he take the ribbing? Could he take the questions on, you know, what are your intentions with my sister or something like that? Well, we have become so polite that we don't want to offend anybody. And we haven't looked at family as this continuing generational thing that's going to support members who are not even born yet. Now, great examples, great examples are a lot of the Asian cultures, whether they're Vietnamese or Chinese. They come over, you might have hardworking people and they don't try to each go off and have their own household. They might have three families living in the same household. They'll start a business. And then all these people are extremely entrepreneurial and they're very family-centered. When does it change? As their children go to public school and discover, why are you listening to your parents for? Yes. Now, just to be clear, All cultures can have their versions of the trustee family. That's why Rush Dooney, and I ended up writing a book with a lot of these thoughts on it, talked about the biblical trustee family. Because the trustee family, without the Bible as its reference, then can get into ancestor worship. And the last thing the Bible would ever speak of is why our ancestors are worthy to be worshipped, because they're sinners like we, but where the family is most instrumental is giving people a realistic view of life. Your parents weren't perfect. Your brothers and sisters weren't perfect. That doesn't mean that they were exploiting you. It was That's where you learned to deal with trespasses. That's where you learned not to be so sensitive to criticism. That's where you learned to ask for help when you needed it. Family values, when you talk about it being a vacant term, because the Bible doesn't speak about family values, it talks about the authority of the family.
0: And that, and that's a part of the trusteeship of the family, the biblical family, in that how that authority is manifest. And I think that we, insofar as it as has ever existed in some cultural enclaves that were not, say, ethnically identified, Polish or Italian or what or Greek or whatever it may be, you had this sort of devolving of that concept of trustee authority to You'll do this because I say so. There's no real understanding other than just raw power. That too perpetuates a, a false idea that tends more toward the domestic type of family. But let's let's talk about this for a minute because there may be people listening who have said, "Okay, well I understand this, and I've I've homeschooled my kids, or my kids have gone to to Christian schools, and I've tried my best to do some of this, but now my kids aren't behaving," quote unquote. They they don't go to church anymore. They don't, they don't listen to me. Maybe they're, maybe they're 18 or 19 or 20. or I would just say this, and I, I'd be very interested in your thoughts is that just because you may raise your children and you do everything properly as best to your ability, and you've asked God to bless that effort, they still have to choose for themselves. They still have to choose to obey God's word and obey God's law. They're not little auto, automatons and robots that we wind up, and then they, they never run down without making any mistakes or doing anything wrong. But just at whatever point there may be a a lack of success or failure, if you want to use that term, that doesn't negate the larger principle that this is what we're to be about doing. And as I think you pointed out in your book, the Lord is certainly going to bless a family that makes the effort to do this in the proper way than one that doesn't.
1: Exactly. When we look at the individual choice, I'm not sure that's the best way to describe it. We need to tell our children from the time they're young. You're going to worship something. We're, we're, you were created to be a worshiper. And you may think you have options to believe or not to believe, you know, not to be or not to be, to believe or not to believe. Well, you're always going to believe. You're going to believe in something. Mm-hmm. And the Bible is clear as day. If you obey God and you honor him with every aspect of your being, then you will be susceptible to all his blessings. Matter of fact, you won't be able to outrun them, which is a lovely concept. I'm not Mm -hmm. a fast runner, but you know what? It's a great concept. (laughs) Secondly, if you fail to worship him because he's the creator and the designer, you will experience the penalties. Now, the fact that you've been deluded into thinking, and you drank the Kool-Aid, as they say, into thinking that being independent and autonomous is great You're going to discover that if you've lived for yourself and then you now need help, all that will be left for you is an impersonal state who will either decide you're not worth keeping alive, so you're on the hit list, the the medical, there's no good reason to put funds in this direction. Mm. So as women have decided that they don't want to have children early and they don't want to have a lot of them because you see that just binds them and chains them. What's going to happen to those women who never married, never had children, and now when they're older, who's going to help them? Well, they're counting on a state that will take it from my children. So I don't even know why they think it's so bad that Christians have a lot of children. You might say, well, okay, there's more people to steal from, right, because we're certainly not producing them. But to give you a biblical orientation on what a trusty family looks like, And I like to use this example a lot. For those who know biblical history, they know that Jacob had 12 sons. And he had 12 sons with four women. And they didn't exactly, the women didn't always get along. And there was competition among the children. Okay, which is a good reason, one man, one woman, which is exactly what God had said. There was a favorite among those 12. And the rest of the brothers didn't like the fact that Joseph was a favorite. And so they first purposed to kill him. And then they had a conscience attack and said, okay, we can't kill him. And so they sold him into slavery, and then they lied to their father. So these were guys who were more than willing to lie to their father. Years later, when they're hungry and they go to Egypt, little do they know that Joseph's the one they're going to ask to give them food. Mm -hmm. And once Joseph recognizes who they are, which was rather quickly, he makes a demand, and he says, do you have any other... Brothers. They go, Oh, yeah, we have another brother. He's with our father. And he goes, Okay, bring him back. Now, obviously, this was Joseph's brother, from they both had the same mother. Well, these other brothers had a real problem. What are we going to do? And one of them was kept in prison, or at least detained, until they came back with Benjamin. When they go back and they say, Dad, we got to take Benjamin, Dad says, No. Now, this is the man they were more than willing to lie to years before. And they listened to him. Why did they listen to him? Why didn't they just say, this old man is nuts, lock him in a closet, and go take Benjamin? Because he still had authority with grown men, his children. As a matter of fact, one of the children says, if we don't bring Benjamin back, I'm going to sacrifice or forfeit my own son. Not that that would have made Joe feel better, particularly. But we were talking about grown men with children. So obviously, they still were honoring their father, and then they persuaded their father because we need to eat, and then Benjamin went back. But to me, that's a great illustration of parental authority, and he by all means was the patriarch of the family. They just didn't dismiss him as somebody old. Another case is the case of Naboth, who had a vineyard, and the king wanted his stuff and Naboth I don't we don't even know if Naboth could have used the money wanted to he just knew that this vineyard was in trust for his family and he wasn't at liberty to give it up and again because there was a consensus Ahab and Jezebel had to construct fake news about Naboth and basically have him killed they didn't just take it because the society recognized the authority and the ownership of property and the family and the family's role in it. And so we so lost that. Most people would say, oh, yeah, they should have just disregarded Jacob. He should have sold it and made some money for Naboth.
0: Well, to go back to something that I had said earlier about this issue of choice, what I meant was, and you helped bring this out, and we'll stay with the example of Joseph and his brothers. I mean, his, bro- his brothers were taught that it was wrong to lie to your father. But they had to make a choice at that particular point what they were going to tell their father about Joseph's fate. That's a very different scenario than what we typically find today where people say, well, I'm just going to let my children decide whether lying or X or Y or Z is right or wrong. That's what I'm talking about. And a pastor, you and I both know, he preached a sermon some years ago called How to Send Your Children to Hell. And that was exactly the point that he made in that sermon is, well, oh, I'm just going to we don't we don't really try to teach our children any religious perspectives. We'll let them make up their mind when when they get of age. That that'll be something they can decide for themselves. And whether you're talking about the literal hell that awaits people who deny God or you're talking about the hell that comes out of just a life that is not grounded in biblical principles, that's exactly what you're doing. You're consigning them to a life of confusion, of chaos and misery. It may not show up all at once, but sooner or later, as Paul so well describes in Romans 1, people wind up living these bizarre, twisted lives that ultimately lead to meaninglessness and hopelessness. I know that one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 8, and Rush Duny often quoted this psalm where wisdom personified is speaking, and she says, All those who hate me are in love with death. And this too is a part of the, the work of the trustee family is to communicate godly wisdom on all areas of life about how to live, how to function in God's creation and world. And if you're in rebellion against that kind of wisdom, against that kind of understanding about what it means to be a man or a woman, a husband or father, a child, then ultimately you're in love with death. And what do we see all around us today in our culture? A culture that is awash in death, glorifying destruction and violence like it would have been unimaginable to previous generations.
1: And people actively killing themselves with drugs and addictions. So obviously, they're not happy. The culture doesn't make them happy. You know, you bring up Rush Dooney, and we're both Rush Dooney fans. He has a book, a really accessible book called Law and Liberty. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks, there's a chapter called The Absurdity of Parenting Today. It is so absurd to live under a humanistic model, which says you birth the babies, you clothe them and feed them and you might do that well past the high school years. You pay for their college and you sending them to a place where it's going to tell them that they have no responsibilities to God or you. So when they're old, they're free. I need to be on my own. It's time. I get some me time. Where does the Bible ever talk about me time? A matter of fact, me time would be the probably the greatest manifestation of sin. We're supposed to be about serving others not me time. And so how many parents will even say today, and he brings that up in his chapter, there's no way I want to live with my children when I'm older. They don't listen to me. They don't care about me. Well, if you didn't instill in them their responsibility, if you don't have multi-generational living situations where maybe not in the same household, but close by that the decisions you make for your children, where they'll be educated, the activities they'll be part of. These are not just private decisions. These are family decisions if we really care about the future. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're saying, well, if this doesn't work. We can always go something else. And so there's that bumper sticker. I don't see it as much as I used to that said, I'm spending my children's inheritance.
0: I'm, I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you brought that up because I had thought this earlier how culturally these anti-biblical things are manifest, and that's a good example. Let me mention two others real quickly. Another bumper sticker that says, if I would not know my grandkids were this much fun, I'd have had them first. You know, that's kind of humorous, but what does it say about their attitude toward the children? Another thing I heard uh, someone say one time is that your friends are God's way of apologizing to you for your relatives. Well, that's that's funny, but again, it it raises the question of why would anybody get a humor out of something like this if there weren't some level of truth to it, and how did we get to the point? And there's nothing wrong with parents enjoying their grandchildren, but as contradictory as the statement is, I would have had them first. It, It betrays the idea that I'm far more satisfied with these kids that I can spoil and not have to deal with the consequences than I am with my own children. Why would it ever be the case that you like your friends better than your own family? And, and that's the norm today. We expect well, to get along that, with people who aren't in our families.
1: Part of that is we throw everybody of the same age in the same grade. And so I don't want to be with my sisters or brothers. I want to be with my friends. Right. Well, what makes homeschooling interesting, especially in large families, even smaller families, that siblings are your friends. These are right. the people who know you best. They're the people you argue with. you are the people you make up with or whatever. You're not in this odd environment from this limited amount of time, and you consider that friendship. You mentioned in our first podcast discussion that it was really sad for you when high school was over. Yes. Well, you probably thought you lost a lot of friends. Well, were they all friends? Or were you all just thrown in the same place at the same time, and so you were acquaintances? I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, you really find out the value of a relationship when it's not easy anymore, whether you continue it.
0: Well, yeah, and, and that's a point well taken, but it, it, it also encapsulizes what I had, that comment that I made, how, in this case, the public school has replaced the family. The schools that I went to, we have a Facebook page. And it's for graduates of the particular high school that I went to from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it's amazing the discussions that are held there where people had common experiences and they remember this when that happened. Maybe they're out there, but how many Facebook pages are there, say, for the Roberts family or, you know, or the Schwartz family where all the members of that family get together and re- reminisce about this, that, and the other?
1: I do have friends who have big family reunions and it's something they do without fail every year. And quite frankly, those families show a heritage and a legacy of biblical thought, even if they you know, have different denominational orientations they love the Lord Jesus Christ and it's important to them. And I've seen them, I'm sorry, I can't do this, something that they might actually like to do because that's the time of our family reunion. And so we should realize that when we're older and you know, it's like you don't know what you've got till it's gone, I so miss the kind of interaction that I could have with my own grandchildren. They don't live close by. My grandparents live downstairs. I could go down and commiserate about, mommy made me do this, or my mother could go down to my grandmother and say, please help me out. She's just being impossible again, which I was. The point being is that families support each other. And even though we spend relatively little amount of time under our parents' roof nowadays, most people can remember the specific details of their childhood but they can't remember their professors in college or who the first people they worked for, or I can't even remember all the places I've lived because we have a context in terms of what's supposed to be there. And lest we think let's blame the parents, let's blame the kids. Let's blame apostasy. Let's blame a lack of biblical faithfulness over a period of time that the foundations now being destroyed It's really hard for people who want to build it properly, but they must build it properly because it's taken generations for it to be lost. It's going to take generations for it to be regained.
0: Yes. Well, as we uh, bring this particular podcast to a close, I would like to uh, make a recommendation to our listeners. If they want some resources, uh, one book in particular that I think would be an excellent resource is a book entitled The Biblical Trustee Family, Understanding God's Purpose for Your Household. And the author is my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. And you can get that book on Amazon or from Calcedon.edu. It is an excellent resource that covers all the stuff, most of the stuff, if not all of it, that we've talked about today. Andrea, do you have any recommendations? You mentioned Law and Liberty. Are there anything else?
1: Yeah, Law and Liberty by Rush Dooney. And Rush Dooney is known for his Institutes of Biblical Law. But he has a volume two and that has a subtitle Law and Society and it's a big book but it's the kind of book that you could go look through the table of contents for something that you really want to think about or talk about or understand better and just pick things out it doesn't have to be read front to back the same way you might read a novel or an instruction book he's giving commentary on what happens when the law is followed in society and what happens when God's law is not. And it's one of my husband's favorite books. When we first became introduced to this man's writings, we got the Institute's volume one, and I became a very selfish reader. When I wanted to read it and he wanted to read it, we were fighting over it. So I won the volume one fight, but then he started reading volume two. And to this day, my favorite's volume one, his favorite is volume two, and I think a lot of it is because in each case, the lights went on for us. And we were like, oh, I see. And so when I finally got around to volume two, I liked it a whole lot. And as a matter of fact, that was my religious instruction for my kids when I was teaching them. Bible, we would go through books of the Bible for sure. But we would also go through this law and society as an understanding of Western civilization and Christendom and what actually produces a Christian culture, and what works against it. So those are my two recommendations, and thanks for the plug. I always appreciate the other.
0: Those are excellent recommendations, and let's be very clear to our listeners. The reason why we recommend these books, and especially the ones by Rush Dooney in particular, is that this man is pointing us to what Scripture teaches. You know, this isn't just a rehash of Carl Rogers or Sigmund Freud about the family or whatever the modern secular uh, that's formed has been baptized in some Christian circles. This is starting with Scripture. This is maintaining fidelity to Scripture, and it ends with Scripture about the implications of raising the family, the implications of the family for culture and society, and that's why... This is such an appealing, trustworthy set of writings, and that's why we recommend them. Well, Andrea, thank you very much for the time we spent together today. We'll look forward to getting together again for our next podcast.
1: Where we discuss the question behind the question.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.